You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11. Today we're going to talk about uh, the, the bigger idea of heresy. Everybody say heresy. heresy. You kind of got to say it like that because it's like a bad word almost or something. So Second Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 3. Paul is writing to the house churches meeting in the city of Corinth uh, around 50-ish AD, and there's some people around, some false prophets. Paul, in quotations, calls them super apostles. And so here's, here's what he says about being deceived by heresy. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 says, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your uh, sincere and pure devotion for Christ. Now he's about to slam them. Are you ready for the slam? A little slam verse. Verse 4 says, If someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. So Paul is saying, in your congregation are all these false teachers, these, these people that are preaching another Jesus, and they're just putting up with it. Verse 5 says, But I do not think I am the least inferior to these super apostles. Do you see it in quotations? My version has it in, in quotations. I, Paul says, I'm not inferior to these super apostles. And Paul says, I may not be trained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. So these, these, tra- these trained speakers, these super apostles, have been trained. They have all the pretty nice little arguments. They have illustrations and poems, but they don't have truth. Paul is saying, I'm not a trained speaker, but I have truth. And he says, we've made this perfectly clear to you in every way. And then skip to verse 13. He says some more about these false apostles. So starting in verse 13, we're skipping ahead just a little bit. It says, for such men, these super apostles, are deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And it is not surprising that his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. But their end will their 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 end will be what their actions deserve. A pretty strong warning against false teaching and arguments that may sound pretty but are false. Paul says, "Don't listen to them if they're just nice, pretty little arguments. Listen to what is true. Listen to true knowledge." So let's pray this morning that we might um, worship our God with our mind. So Father, we do come before you, God. We ask you to give us a true understanding. Help us to understand these books of First and Second Corinthians. God, let your word guide us into truth. Allow us not to be um, drifted, up, drifted away from you by arguments that sound nice and sound pretty. But let us drift closer to you because you are true. You are the truth. You are true knowledge. And so God, give us the understanding of true knowledge this morning. And God, we worship you. We praise you this morning. And everybody screamed... Amen. Does anybody like that movie, Monty Python, Holy Grail? Anybody? There's always like these freaks that really love it. And then they could quote like every single line. And then there's the people that hate those people. So then they hate the movie just because the freaks like it. But I, I, I'm like in the middle somewhere. I, I really like the film, but I'm not a freak that could quote it. But anyways, there's this, uh, there's this part in the movie where they, there's a witch, like this mob gets the witch. And some, I'm sure one of you could probably reenact the whole scene uh, with every, all of the lines. But there's this witch 
And, and they say, she's a witch. She says, I'm not a witch. And how do you know she's a witch? Well, she has a wart. It's like, well, we need to test and see if she's a witch. So their test is, oh, if she is a witch, then we need to burn her at the stake. And what burns is also wood. And so we need to throw her into the pond. And if she drowns, then she wasn't a witch. But if she floats, then she is a witch because she's like wood and wood floats and wood burns. So we need to burn her at the stake. And then they like weigh her with a duck or something, which is just even more random. It's like the stupidest thing. It's like the whole humor is just really stupid. And that's why it's funny because it's like stupidly funny. Um, but that scene is very much like what they did with heretics. Obviously, it's, it's funny and punny. Uh, lots of puns on the Middle Ages. But the Middle Ages, uh, they dealt with heretics violently. Um, I don't see, and I don't think they did a good job. Um, the Catholic Church at that time of the Middle Ages... Um, had government political control over pretty much all of Europe. And if someone didn't believe along the lines of the Catholic Church, they were either killed or tortured. And then all these things like medieval torture devices got invented. And it's like, well, we can't just put someone on a rack and stretch them. Let's also put spikes on the rack. And then let's invent some more whips to whip them while they're on the rack. And then like while we're whipping them, why they're, why they're getting spikes in their back, why they're being pulled because they believe something different than the church believed. Let's also squish their head with like a skull crusher thing. How's your breakfast taste now? <laughs> And that's why we put uh, on the cover of the mill are some heretics. These are some heretics getting burned and someone's like stoking a fire. And so in, in the Middle Ages, people, the Catholic Church dealt with heretics by torturing them and killing them. And by the way, in the New Testament, I can't find anything that really uh, says that that's okay. It's like what you should do, if someone doesn't believe along with what you believe, you should invent torture devices and kill them and find, invent ways of, of killing people. I see that the New Testament is, you know, love your neighbor. If someone doesn't believe what you believe, show them your faith by your good works and convert them, right? So that, I mean, but that's why we don't do medieval torture devices anymore. I think that was a sin from the church becoming too powerful politically and it leading to sin and, and the opposite of extreme of killing heretics. And, and so even today, like that, that word heretic, if you're a heretic, it's kind of like this medieval kind of bad word, don't you think? If someone's like a heretic, the word heretic or false teacher, same thing. But the, the word heretic just has all that baggage of the, with the Middle Ages with it. And I want to talk about today that, you know, while we don't torture heretics, we should be on guard against heresy. We should be on guard against false teaching. And uh, I think, you know, in some ways, going back to that word, the, the heretic word, like, there's some people that just like being a part of, like, oh, I want to be a heretic. Heretic sounds cool. And it's kind of like re- rebelling against what is normal. And, like, I knew a girl when I, I lived in Florida for a couple summers. And I knew a girl that would come to every—we had a college church on this campus. She'd come to the college church every single week. And she was, like, wearing all black and leather and, like, black eyeliner and uh, she smoked a ton of cigarettes, and she was just, she wanted to be known as, oh, I'm the heretic. I'm the one that doesn't believe what you guys believe, and she was a little socially awkward, so I, I really think that, like, the church was her only friend, so she came to church just to be with her friends, even though she didn't believe what the church believed, and she would always kind of, like, during church, she'd kind of hang out in the back or in the lobby, smoke cigarettes in the bathroom, <laughs> and just, just, 
not be a part of church, but then we'd go out to eat and she'd be, you know, she'd have fun with us and stuff and she'd always make a point of, oh, that's what you guys believe. But then she would refer to herself, but I'm the heretic. Ooh. And I think some part of heresy is like that word, like, oh, I want to be different. I want to rebel against what is, you know, supposed to be orthodox. But I think much more generally, the term heresy, the term false teaching, the term heretic, usually uh, in our time, in our day and age, applies to someone that maybe just hears an argument and says, man, that argument sounds so good. It's, it sounds really well put together. It's a little different than what Christians believe, but it sounds so good. I, I th- maybe I'll accept that kind of thinking into the way that I think. And, and I think that's really how false teaching and heresy can, can mess up a person or a group of people, that they just begin accepting um, arguments made from maybe really well-known speakers or uh, popular ways of saying it, and they accept those things that are anti-Christian, against what is orthodox. If you're taking notes, um, there, there's the Greek word for heresy. Um, the, Gre- the Greek is heresius, and uh, the Greek word literally means to choose. So if you're taking notes, the Greek word heresy, heresius, uh, means to choose. And I think our culture, we get to choose a lot of things, don't you think? It's like, you, you don't just walk into the store and buy an iPod. You've got to pick your colors. Like, what color best represents me? Let me choose, right? Or think about Starbucks. Don't even get me started. You walk in there, and it's not like, would you like a cup of coffee, or would you not like a cup of coffee? It's like, what kind of combination could I possibly compose to make your drink the drink that best represents you, right? And so everybody has like their drink, oh, caramel macchiato or one pump mocha, no whip, blah, 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 la, 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 <laughs> right? And so every, I mean, there's just so many choices and, that, and there's nothing wrong with choosing what you really like. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But I think this whole idea of choosing what you want and then choosing, getting into the belief, getting to the spiritual idea of that, that our culture is just all about choosing, is that we could choose our own religion. We could, we could, you know, what's popular today is like picking things from other religions, and oh, I like this idea from Buddhism. I, I, I kind of like this idea from Christianity, and so I'm going to combine them together to choose and make my own little religion. And I think that has a lot to do with wh- where heresy comes from and what heresy is, this whole bigger idea of choosing what you want to believe, this, and knowing that it's not, it may not be correct, but you're kind of making your own choice. So the definition, if you're taking notes, once again, uh, I'm going to define heresy this morning as choosing to believe something that is contrary to the Bible. Definition of heresy that we're using this morning is choosing to believe something that is contrary to the Bible. And Paul, as, as we study these books of First and Second Corinthians, Paul has a lot of arguments about false teachers, about false uh, truth, about things, heresies, false teachings. And he gives str- s- warnings, strong warnings against them. Second Corinthians, we're going to look at a passage later that talks about false teaching in First Corinthians. And so we're, we are defining heresy. I'll, I'll read it one more time. It's choosing to believe something that is contrary to the Bible. And why, we, why I chose to define it like that, um, it's, I mean, it's pretty obvious. That's, that's, I mean, that's a good definition. But I, I wrote it as, because there are some definitions that say just choosing to believe what is you know, choosing to believe something that is unorthodox. But I put the Bible in the choosing to believe something that is contrary to the Bible because it is the Bible that defines what we believe. Right? And so if someone teaches this, someone's saying this, who's, who's right? 
Well, you compare it with what the Bible says. It's like, well, the person that is right is in line with the Bible. The person that's kind of making up and choosing their own path, well, they're not in line with the Bible, so they are, in fact, wrong. And so the Bible is our foundation. It's our thing that we go to as Christians, as that God himself, the creator of the universe, gave us this book, the Bible, of all these books, and we can know what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false, by comparing it with the Bible. And so as I was thinking about this lesson and and getting ready and preparing, I thought, okay, but what about the people, what about groups maybe even, that say, we believe in the Bible, but we believe something radically different than what you evangelical Christians believe. And I thought of as an an example, two examples, and these are just for examples, uh, of the Mormon church and the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, church. And Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses would both, both groups would say, yes, we believe in the Bible, but... As evangelical Christians, we would have a lot of foundationally different beliefs than either a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness. And so what I believe happened is the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, the founder of, uh, wait, the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, founder of Jehovah's Witnesses was uh, Charles Taze Russell, a guy named Charles Taze Russell. Sweet middle name, by the way. Um, But I think what they both did is they had beliefs and then they went into the Bible and found verses that um, kind of proved what they were believing. Does anyone know what that word is called when you do that? When you find like a ver- when you have a belief and you go into the Bible and find a verse that says that? Proof texting. Yes, I heard it somewhere. Proof texting is when you find, you're like, oh, I think this is true. I'm going to go into the Bible. I'm going to find a verse that, that kind of proves what I want the Bible to say. And so you're not reading the whole context. You're just picking out one little verse. And I think that's what, in some ways, that's what the Mormon church, that how they're foundationally, uh, their beliefs are different than our beliefs, and yet they still say, oh yeah, we believe in the Bible too. It's like, well, I mean, for instance, what, there's the, the concept that Jesus is God. Do we believe as evangelical Christians that Jesus is God? Yes, yes we do. We believe that he's 100% God. And so we could show you in the Bible Whole passages, lots of scripture where Jesus, you know, says that he's God. That says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. If, you know, I and the, I and the Father am one. Before Abraham was, I am. There's whole teachings that Jesus teaches that he is one with the Father. I mean, it's throughout the, the New Testament. And yet, a Mormon and uh, a Jehovah's Witnesses would both say, Jesus isn't God. Jesus is, uh, Mormons would say Jesus is Satan's brother. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses would say, oh, he's a good teacher, prophet, but he's not God himself. He is the Savior, but he's not God. In fact, I have um, a translation of the Bible. This is called the New World Translation. If you have the New World Translation, you should at least just know that this is the Jehovah's Witnesses translation. It's published by Watchtower. And what this passage, this really bothers me. It's a, it's a passage in uh, John chapter 1. The Gospel of John starts off with, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And so the Jehovah's Witnesses would have a problem with that verse, don't you think? Yeah. In the beginning was the Word, because the Word, if, you've, if you know the context of that passage, the context is that the Word becomes flesh, and the Word makes his dwelling among us. The Word is Jesus. And so Jesus was one with God in the beginning. So it's that, it's that play on the, this idea of the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses, in their New World Translation of the Scripture, they changed that verse. 
They just change it to fit their belief. And it says this. I'm reading out of the Jehovah's Witnesses translation of the Bible. It says, In the beginning, the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a little g, God. That's a little different than how we translate it, right? And so you go into the Greek, and you see it, and I've seen it with my own eyes as I studied uh, for my master's degree and, and took classes, several classes in Greek, in Arche, in Ologos, Kai and Ologos, and Ton Trion. And so you look at the Greek, and you say, the translation is obvious. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Period. That's how you translate it. And yet the, the Jehovah's Witnesses change that. They proof text this verse and literally change it to fit their doctrine. Instead of allowing the Bible to, to make their doctrine correct, they have their doctrine and they change the Bible in order to f- fix the Bible according to their doctrine. In my opinion, messed up. Right? And so that, I mean, I, that's an example. And I, I do have friends that are Jehovah's Witnesses, and they're really nice people. And, um, but I, I would argue with them and say, you know, you, you, your religion changed the Bible to match your doctrine instead of allowing the Bible to formulate your doctrine. That's messed up. That's, you know, by definition, heretical. It's according to our definition of choosing to believe something that is contrary to the Bible, literally changing the Bible to fit your doctrine. And so that's, that's an example of, of proof texting. And so what I want to ask you right now, we'll just do a short discussion, kind of get you your thinking, uh, chit-chatting with the weird people you're sitting around. And um, <laughs> the question is this. It's pretty simple. And I'll let you just kind of go with the question. There's lots of avenues to go with it, this question. But just how do you guard yourself against heresy? How do you guard yourself against false teaching? Whether it's you know, how do you, how do you know when you're listening to someone, whether what they're, what they're saying is true? How do you guard yourself into thinking, you know, how do I protect myself into thinking, you know, false things as either I'm reading the Bible or as I'm reading a, a book or just in thinking and, you know, conversing with people? How do you guard yourself? It's a pretty big open-ended question, but converse with some people around you or if you're by yourself, you can just list out some reasons. That's totally fine. The question is, how do you guard yourself against heresy? I'll give you like a minute or so to converse. So jump right in. Be bold. Converse. Ready, get set, go.
I'll give you like another uh, minute to try to wrap up. Probably wasn't enough time, but just to answer the question, how do you guard against heresy? Begin to, to wrap up your conversation and think if you want to, uh, we'll, we'll kind of discuss this as a, as a big group if you're bold enough to, to share. I know there's a lot of people here. I think we have mics coming around. Let's see. We'll have some people with some mics in a second. And so wait till the people with the mics get to you. And if you wouldn't mind standing up just so everyone can see you and uh, just kind of share maybe what your table discussed. The question being, how do you guard yourself against heresy, against false teachings? How do you begin to do that? Is anyone courageous enough to go first-ish? <laughs> first-ish, I don't know. <laughs> Discussed that some of the best ways to keep your heart protected um, from lies of the enemy, really, mm-hmm. is to make sure that you dive into your word daily, first of all, to keep it fresh in your heart. Yeah. And then also to believe in, like, discernment. Believe what? Sorry. Discernment. Discernment. Of the Holy yeah. Spirit inside of your heart, testing it according to the Word, yeah. and testing it with people that you honestly trust, and the Holy Spirit, and all of the, those things work in harmony, mm-hmm. and it's, it really lines up with with God. Then you know that it's truth. If it's not, then you don't need to accept it into your heart. Yeah, that's good. So I'm hearing you say, say two things. One is uh, to read the Bible for yourself daily, and I think that's huge. I just think you know if if your Christian life is, is coming to church and listening to, to speakers or, or pastors, that's great. But if you don't study it for yourself, then what, what will happen if you hear a false teacher or a false, uh, someone who's teaching false doctrine? Will you just accept it and have no way to, to know what the difference is between something that is false and something that is true doctrine? And so re- reading the Bible for yourself, excellent. And then I heard you say spiritually discern. Use, use discernment spiritually. Pray about things. And that, that is good as well. I think... I know Bruce has something he's got to say. And then maybe one more after Bruce Diggity. <laughs> Be back, Joe. <laughs> um, basically, like, you need to, you know, when you're listening to sermons, when you're listening to different teachings, especially online um, and stuff like that, like, go back and check. Because there's a lot of preachers um, out there right now who just preach on concepts just preach on, like, this is a good idea for your life. Uh-huh. And they may be based on Christian principles, but every once in a while those things aren't based on Christ- Christian principles. And people set up their entire lives around principles that aren't even in the Bible. Yeah. And so you really want to watch out. You know, if you've got a one-verse preacher 
who, you know, every time he preaches, it's one verse from here, one verse from here, one verse from here, one verse from here. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but you got to watch out and you got to go back and read and see if that really is, is what that passage is talking about or if it's talking about something else. And it's very easy when you read the verses around it to yeah. see whether he's interpreting that right or not for yourself. You can use your own critical thinking skills and use yeah, your own good. brain and, and come up with your own, own idea. And if you have a hard time, you can get a commentary or, or a Greek uh, Hebrew dictionary and, and you can go back and Yeah, and, I'll talk about that in a original. second. That's good. I thought of, as you were saying that, I thought, yeah, that is, the internet is just a, I mean, if you have a weird little belief that you want to share with others, the internet is awesome. And if you want to learn more about weird little beliefs that other people have, the internet is awesome. <laughs> you could really mess your faith up by like going on YouTube and just believing every, every message you see on YouTube or uh, just finding weird, just type in like into the world and then like Google all those sites and just read and believe everything you see. And you'll get really messed up really quick. Um, you need to be guided by Scripture. And so the, the, the next piece on our notes, I think, I think we had good comments. Okay, thanks for sharing, you guys that did share. The, the next piece on the notes is this word, the H word, hermeneutics. And it's a big word, but it means the study of interpreting the Bible. So if you're taking notes and you don't know what that word means, write that, write that next to hermeneutics. The study of interpreting the Bible. The study of interpreting the Bible. And... and I think that this word is a, is a big word, and I'll, I'll use it a lot from now on in this, as I talk this morning. And it's a really important word, because I, I'm going to say a statement, and I've said it, I don't know, I've probably said it a hundred times in, in the Mill Sunday School, so many of you will be able to con- finish the statement that I'll begin. But some of you, this may be the first time you'll hear it, and it may sound very shocking and strange to you, but here's the statement. The Bible is not written to us, the Bible's written, written for us. So let me, I'm going to say that again. If you're taking notes, this is a key statement. And it may sound like, whoa, what's he talking about? But I'll explain it. The Bible is not written to us, but it is written for us. The Bible's not written to us, but it's written for us. And what we have to realize is like, literally, we are studying this month, we're going to study the books of First and Second Corinthians. We have to know that this book, Corinthians, is an actual letter. For instance, the, the, the First and Second Corinthians are letters to the house churches meeting in Corinth around 50 AD. Is it written to us at New Life Church 2009? Well, it's not, no, it's not written to us, but it is written for us. Make no mistake about it. The Bible is for us. It's our foundation. It's our, it's our guide, our number one guide, our go-to guide of, of determining what is true and what is false doctrine. But we have to realize, as believers in 2009, that the Bible is not written directly to us. It's written for us. And so things that Paul says as he, as he directs his conversations to this church in Corinth around 50 AD, he says some things that we would look at and say, well, that was for that church because they were struggling with this. But I, I guess we're not really struggling with those issues anymore, so we don't have to do this or that. We're going to get, I mean, there's some hard passages in the, in the books of First and Second Corinthians. There's a passage about women in ministry, and women are to be silent in the church. If you're a girl, please pipe down. <laughs> but we're going to, I mean, we're going to spend a whole Sunday on that, by the way, that issue of women in ministry and women, uh, how Paul uh, has specific directives. Women must be silent in the church. We're going to talk about that because 
Is that written to us? No, but it is written for us. There's some ideas there that are very important, but it's not written directly to us, New Life Church, 2009. And so I, I, be- I believe with hermeneutics, with the correct interpretation of the time in which it was written, the author, the audience, we can say, okay, well, th- it was a very different culture then than it is now. And so let's, let's apply the things that, that, are, um, that are true with all... Um, that's probably a word, wrong way to word it. Let's, let's apply the things that that stand the test of time and let's look at the things like the passages about women and be quiet in the church and let's say, how did that apply to that church back then? What was going on then? How is that different now? How do we apply that for today? And so we're going to look at that specific issue later. Um, but today we're just talking about this bigger idea that the Bible's not written to us, but it's written for us. And I think that's something that we just need to get in our, into our hearts, into our minds. And so as we read a passage, as we look at a verse, we have to realize that that verse is not written to us directly. It's literally written you know, to the church's meeting in Corinth, but we, it is for us. And so we have to apply it. We have to interpret it for us for today. And there are some tools, as, as Bruce started to mention, there's, there's tools for doing interpretation. There's tools for doing hermeneutics correctly. Finding out the author, who wrote it, finding out the audience, who was written to, finding out the social setting of the time it was written so that you can apply it for today is doing hermeneutics and doing it well. And some of the tools are, like this Bible is a study Bible. How many of you cool people have a study Bible? Yes, I see those hands. That is the best Bible ever. I'm very opinionated when it comes to this because I I really believe in this idea of hermeneutics. And so if you have like a small travel Bible, I have one of those too. If I'm going on a trip, I'll throw it in my bag. But this Bible is is much bigger. It's harder to put in my purse. (laughs) Not that I have a purse. <laughs> Anyways, it's harder to put in a purse. Not my purse. I don't have a purse because it's bigger. But what this Bible has is study notes down at the bottom of the page. So directly on the page with the scripture is notes about what was going on at the social setting, the cultural background. And so as you're reading Corinthians and you come to something confusing, which by the way, will probably happen a lot because the Bible's not written to you, but it's written for you. And so if you've never read the books of First and Second Corinthians and you sit down to do it, it shouldn't really take more than like an hour actually, um, you'll come across some confusing things. And if you have a study Bible, you could look down at those notes and say, oh, okay, this, this passage is going back to another passage, or Paul's actually quoting something else here, and it helps make sense. It helps interpret the passage. So, get yourself a study Bible. Do you got one? Some of you do. I think it's pretty cool. I mean, if, if it costs a little bit more to get the study Bible, but it's well worth it because the notes are right there on the page. You could also get something a little bigger, um, and this is <clears throat> a commentary of the whole Bible. If you plan on being a Christian for the rest of your life, you should probably pick one of these up at some point. Um, It's it's a good investment. You'll have it for the rest of your Christian life, which will be the rest of your life, hopefully. (laughs) And you pick this up, and and so if you come to a passage and it's really weird and confusing, you're like, what is he talking about? This doesn't make any sense. And your study Bible doesn't have enough about it, and you're like, it seems like there's more to it. Then you could pick up this which is a commentary of the whole Bible. And so you go to Corinthians, you go to 1 Corinthians, you go to the passage, and it has maybe a whole paragraph or maybe a whole page about a confusing verse or a set of passages. And it helps you interpret it for yourself because the Bible's not written to you, but it's written for you. 
I'm going to say that a bunch of times today because I think it's, it's, it's an important idea as we study books of the Bible to know that it is not written to us but for us. And then um, if you really plan on being a Christian for the rest of your life, <laughs> lighten up everybody, I'm just joking. Everyone's like, you get a full set of commentaries, which is really expensive. And I, I just got one uh, as I graduated with my doctorate degree. My wife's family got me like this big, it's like this big. We had to ship it back and, uh, and like tons of boxes. And so it's every book of the Bible pretty much has its own book to, to talk about it, to help us interpret it for today. And so this whole book, look how thick this bad boy is. This bad boy is only the book of 1 Corinthians. And so it's someone's notes. It's, it's called a commentary. Someone's comments on the passage. And this particular one goes into, it like, it exegetes Greek words. It talks about the history of that Greek word and possibly other definitions of the Greek word. It talks about the context Paul was living in, the city of Corinth, um, the setting. Let's see, it talks more about Paul. It's got a lot of history about Paul. It's got a ton of stuff. And I remember the first time I saw a book like this um, for like the book of Corinthians. I mean, the book of Corinthians is like this big right here. So it's like this big. Everybody see that? It's like this many pages. And then you got this big book to explain those pages. And I remember the first time I saw that, it was a little frustrating. I was like, why do we need this huge monstrosity to understand those pages? And and this idea got to working in my heart that, that we need this to correctly interpret it for today because it's not written to us, but it's written for us. And so if it's actually written to another, it's directed and addressed to this church in Corinth around 50 AD, then to really understand what's being written, we have to understand who it was being written to and who was writing it so that we can correctly interpret it for today. So does that big idea make sense? Everybody say yes. Okay, even if it doesn't, just... Just kidding. Just kidding. Man, everybody's kind of serious. Everybody's serious today. You guys okay? I mean, it's, it's serious about some things, but if I make a joke, you laugh. I'll come out there and get you. All right, so let's do this. Let's... <laughs> Thank you. Let's go to the background of Corinth. If, if we just talked about how important it is to know the background and significance of what's being written, let's do a quick study of what Corinth was all about. And so Paul writes two letters... Uh, to the churches meeting at Corinth. Paul stayed there. I believe he stayed there for about a year and a half. And he was hanging out there uh, for a year and a half. Then he moved to another city. The book of Acts tells us that he went to Corinth and then to Ephesus. So we think that potentially the book of 1 Corinthians was written from Ephesus. So Paul is in a city for like a year and a half. He leaves to go to Ephesus. Then he hears of some rumors, some things happening in Corinth. So he writes a letter back to them. And the city of Corinth, at the time of this history, was controlled by uh, what empire? Do you know? Rome. Yes, I heard it. So Rome had control of all of, you know, what is pretty much the Mediterranean. You know, so, uh, do you know where Corinth is, by the way? It's in what is today? Greece. Yes. Makes me happy that people know stuff. So cool. So Corinth, the city is in Greece. At the time, the, the Roman power controlled 
controlled the area. And when Rome would take over an area, it would often give its power back to the people. Instead of just taking over an area, making everybody slaves and burning cities, Rome would usually take over an area, use the resources, give some of those local people uh, political power, and they would kind of rule rule themselves. And so Rome was seen as this giant melting pot of ideas, of religions from all over the Roman world, all over the Mediterranean. There was people from all different sorts of beliefs being melded in into this Roman Empire. Maybe similarly to today in the United States of America. We have people, citizens of America from everywhere. And so there's, all, there's this melting pot of, of so, uh, societies and religions. Um, the religion at the time, the popular religion of the Roman Empire at this time was these mystery religions, kind of stemming from the older ancient, the golden era of Greece and Rome, where there was the gods like Jupiter, Aphrodite, Apollos. Like that was kind of the ancient system, um, like in the BC era, but now this is 50 AD. And so there's new religions kind of basing themselves off, to, off of these old gods. And so they were called the mystery religions. It was very personal. Everybody was spiritual. People worshiped their own spiritual gods. People would invite you to, to worship in their home. And so you maybe go to the basement or something. And I imagine candles and seances and uh, a- amulets. And uh, you would worship You'd have a big feast, and you'd, you'd, you'd kill an animal and sacrifice it to an idol, and then you'd have a big feast, and you'd share it with each other. And it was pretty much idolatry. Pretty much, um, it was very, everyone was spiritual. Everyone had their own personal beliefs. It's quite similarly to today. There's a lot of comparisons about today in the United States and this ancient Roman culture of, you know, this, the idea of the melting pot, the idea that everyone was spiritual but had personal spirituality, um, Let's see, uh, in Rome, there was the Roman roads that made uh, travel very possible. Before the Rome came in and took over an area, there were very few roads. It was just like, yeah, take the path to Denver. Just start walking north. There'll be a path and try to stay on it. Hopefully you'll end up in Denver. (laughs) But after Rome came, Rome is like, well, let's make some legitimate roads that people can have horses and carts on. And then let's protect those roads so pirates and bandits don't get you as you're headed to Denver. Let's have like an actual road so you can move along those roads. And so this opened up even more of a melting pot kind of society where people could travel and hear ideas from other places. And so in Corinth, I think we have a picture. Can we show that picture of Corinth? Uh, The city of Corinth is in Greece. It's right between what is North Greece and what is South Greece. Um, You kind of see Corinth there. Oh, I forgot my laser pointer. I was going to show you, I was going to do a laser pointing. Dang it. Isn't that disappointing? Like I just forgot it. Man, I was thinking about that all week. I was like, man, I can't wait to point with my laser show you things. But Corinth is on the sea. Corinth is this, on this narrow isthmus. Uh, why don't we zoom in? I think we have one more picture that's a zoom in of where Corinth is. And, and so you see Corinth on this narrow little island. And so east-west, are, it's, Corinth is this major shipping point. Oh, is this a laser? Oh, it doesn't work. Is it working? Stick my eye in it. It's so weak though. That's weak. Can you see? I see it like right here. See it? But then you can't see it up there. Dang it. I had a really powerful one. It was like if I shined it in your eyes, you would die. <laughs> can't believe I forgot it. Anyways, what were we talking about? <laughs> I don't know why. why. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, shipping port, that's right. Okay, so Corinth is east-west. It's this major shipping port port, uh, from Athens. Athens is just to the right up there. Uh, People going to Corinth would would go to Corinth and then maybe move their goods across that isthmus. It's only three miles. And then move their stuff or sell it. And another ship would take it to Rome. And so it was was like a shortcut instead of going around all of Greece. And so it's this huge shipping port. And north-south, it's like this major trucker stop because people on the road... Would, would, would stop there. And so if you're going from northern Greece to southern Greece, there's only one way. If, you, if you're walking, obviously there wasn't trucks back then, but if you had a bunch of horses and you're like hauling a bunch of goods from north Greece to south Greece, you have to go through Corinth. So east, west, north, south, this is a major stop. It's a major port. And what usually happens at uh, major shipping ports? Well, usually there's a bunch of guys there that have been out traveling for a really long time and they're a long ways from home and they think, well, no one will find out what I'm doing. And so Corinth was a very lewd city. It was a very, in fact, the Greek word to Corinthianize means, like it was used as slang to say, are you going to go do something bad? You're going to go Corinthianize that area? It means you're just going to go pillage. And there was, there, on top of this hill was this temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of Love And supposedly, there's reports that 3,000 temple prostitutes lived at that temple. And so Corinth was known as this major port stop for all these people that if you wanted to do something immoral and bad, then Corinth had it for you. And so there was a lot of uh, sex, a lot of prostitution, a lot of travelers coming in and out of Corinth all the time. And so despite this, the sin that was in Corinth, Corinth was also known as this area, this place where people would come and be traveling around as traveling speakers. And so the next point in your notes is this point that says rhetoric. Have you heard of that word before? Rhetoric is the, is the, it's hard to define exactly, but rhetoric is like this Greek way, this ancient way of constructing communication, constructing arguments. And it got to be really popular. And there was good and bad rhetoricians. You had to go through training and learn how to communicate very well. I was, I was just thinking the other day about um, this because how much of our world is all about communication? I was in the airport last week. I was going to a wedding. That's why I wasn't at Sunday school. And I just remember being in the airport, looking around at everyone was doing something. I mean, people, if you have like an hour to wait, do you just stand there and stare at the wall? No, you'd look stupid. Like, why don't you get a magazine? Why don't you get a book? Why don't you get a laptop? Why don't you get an MP3 player? Why don't you watch the TV that's playing? Why don't you do something and, and do something? But think about this. In ancient Corinth, 50 AD, were there laptops? Nah. If they were, they're like the really old IBMs. Were there cell phones? Text messages? No. Were there uh, TVs you could watch? No. Were there magazines yet? No. Were there books? And it's, you'd say, yes, books were in existence, uh, letters, but they were usually big scrolls, and they were all handwritten. The printing press wasn't invented to, until 1500, the 1500 AD, with the Gutenberg Press. And so if you had a book, it would be like this giant scroll, and it would literally be worth more than your life. Because it, it takes about a lifetime to write. A, you know, if you were to handwrite the Bible, it would take a long time. It'd be worth something. It'd be so valuable, you wouldn't just pull it out in the airport and start reading it. 
It'd be so extremely valuable. So people didn't have books back then, or most of them couldn't read. They didn't have magazines. They didn't have MP3 players or TV. Think about what, what would you do without that? If you had like a whole, whole day, it's like, okay, I want to live a whole day like someone lived in 550 AD. What would you do? You'd be like, oh, I just watch a movie. No, you wouldn't. No, I just talk on my cell phone. No, you wouldn't. I just read a book. No, you wouldn't. What would you do? You'd just be sitting at your house, staring at a wall. And then a friend would knock on the door. And your friend would say, dude, there's this guy speaking in the city square. You want to come listen to him? You're like, nah, I'd rather stare at this wall. Of course you'd go. You'd go and you'd listen to him. And then you'd hear these arguments. And you'd hear maybe how well the speaker had been trained. And they have poetic ways of saying things. For instance, like, have you heard of like a rhetorical question? I just did one. Think about it. <laughs> Rhetorical questions are just like, has anyone never not, has anyone not sinned? Has anyone never not sinned? What's the question? Has anyone never sinned? Or I don't know. Is any question. Has, is anyone wearing blue? You're not really asking the question. You're just saying something to get people to think about your point and your, the direction of where you're going. For instance, uh, we'll get to this in a second. Um, but the, that's a type of using rhetoric. Um, the way in which you would structure a conversation, if you were giving a speech, there was a rhetorical way of, uh, of rhetoric way of giving an argument. And it usually went with like point A, B, C, and D. And then you'd talk, your main point would be D. Like what you really want to talk about is the D. So A, B, C, D. And then you go D, C, B, A. You'd go back. So your beginning and ending are, have the same points, the B's, the second point in your argument and the second to the last point in your argument would be very similar. Your C's would be the similar. And then D, what you're really saying, would be in the middle of your conversation. And that was a rhetorical way, of the rhetoric way, this ancient way of giving an argument. And people were very skilled in it. You know, it was one of the top things that you learned when you went to school of how to, how to do rhetoric, how to compose sentences and conversations so that you could be a traveling speaker, so that you could give speeches and people would listen to you. Because they, they didn't watch TV back then. They didn't read books back then. They didn't even pick up magazines back then. They didn't have iPods or MP3 players. And so entertainment was maybe listening to someone speak about something new or a new idea. And so people became very good at doing that. And, and Paul, remember that passage we read today? Paul is saying, oh, these super apostles, they have nice arguments. They've been trained in the way to speak, but they have no knowledge. They have no knowledge. And so I want you to turn to another passage in 1 Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at this argument. This is, it's going to blow your mind if you're not sitting down. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul begins uh, to, to speak about foolishness. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, and then he just quotes uh, Isaiah I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And then he asks some rhetorical questions. Listen. So he's using rhetoric. Where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? So Paul's using rhetoric. And what's amazing in this passage, the passage is really about from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through about the rest of the chapter, it's a rhetorical argument against using rhetoric as as the end note. So if you're saying, oh, what's true? Well, if someone could say it 
in a really good rhetorical way, then it must be true. And Paul is saying, no, just because something is said with a nice argument doesn't make it true. It has to have knowledge and wisdom and power behind it. And so Paul goes on, look at chapter 2. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul is saying, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the, the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul's just kind of saying, I'm not even going to apologize for not using beautiful rhetorical ways of communicating because what I have is truth. And you could listen to someone who has very nice rhetorical ways of conversing and they have all the nice arguments and poems and it's very linguistically nice to hear and you just say, oh, they're a good speaker. But if what they're speaking about is false, then it's false. And Paul's saying, listen to what is true. And what he does, this is the part that will blow your mind. At least it blew mine. I think you have to really read it and kind of outline the argument for yourself to really recognize what Paul is doing. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through the rest of chapter 1, is saying you don't have to use rhetoric to, to, to present true arguments. Something is true because it's true, not because it is displayed in a rhetorical way, a beautiful way. And what Paul is doing, you ready for your mind to be blown, is the perfect rhetoric in this passage. So he's using rhetoric and saying, oh, I don't have rhetorical skills what I have is truth. But he's actually also obviously impressing his ancient audience with using rhetoric. It's almost like a hidden kind of secret cool thing. Does that blow your mind? Everybody say, yes! (laughs) It blows my mind. It's pretty cool. Paul's saying, what is really important is truth. True arguments. Not just arguments that sound good. So I want to close with this idea that that I think believing in a heresy, believing in something just because it has a nice sounding argument to it, is is somewhat like believing in a scam. And it's it's the same kind of, like if if you're wanting to buy something. Actually, I have a story. A a friend of mine, this was like three years ago. He had just gotten married. Uh, Him and his wife were pregnant. They had a kid. And their car died. And so they had to buy a new car. And they wanted a car that was good in gas mileage. Uh, safe to drive, wouldn't break down. He, he was uh, doing a lot of skiing, and, and, and so he wanted a car with four-wheel drive, and so they decided the perfect mobile for them would be a Subaru, um, kind of like a wagon thing. And so they're looking on the internet. They're trying to find the best deal they can for the Subaru. And so they want it a little bit newer, and they find one on the internet. They find one, it's uh, by yahooautotraders.com or something like that. And they find this car. Most cars, this uh, it's like, I forget the year and the model or whatever. But it's, he said, oh, they were mostly going for about $10,000. But this particular car was going for $4,000. And it looked really good. He had pictures there, a bunch of pictures inside, outside. looked good, had good mileage. Uh, actually had a VIN number. And so he looked up the VIN number, found that the VIN of that vehicle, the car had never been totaled or in a crash or et cetera, et cetera. So it was a good car. And why was the person selling it for See, he was selling it for 4000 but it was, the blue book was like 10000 Why was he selling it so much cheaper? Oh, he had to go to Iraq and fight for a country. He just got deployed, so he needs to sell the car as fast as he possibly can. And so, would you please help me out? Buy the car. I, I need to sell it. And so, my friend is like, this sounds like a perfect car. It sounds like a great deal. Um, he's got pictures. He's got the VIN number. He's got contact information, telephone numbers, fax numbers, an address. Um, seems like it's a, all a good deal. He's got to sell it 
to, to go fight in Iraq. And he could buy the car and help him go to Iraq and not have to worry about his car. Seems like a great deal, right? So, the guy, lives, the guy that has the car lives in Florida. He says, wire me the money and then I'll arrange for the car to be delivered to Colorado, where, where he lives. And so my friend, you know, a little hesitant about that, but it's like, oh, let, you know, Western, he did Western Union, so there's a name, there's phone numbers, uh, call, called, uh, emailed, um, had all these contacts for the guy, seemed like a nice guy. Um, FedEx, or not FedEx, what did I said, Western Union's the money to Florida. The guy gets his money, says, yeah, you should get the car in a week. Week goes by. He calls. He faxes. He emails. Turns out that the phone numbers, the addresses, the fax, all went to this warehouse with nothing in it in Florida. So here he had spent $4,000 to buy a car, had got scammed. He writes Yahoo, calls Yahoo and says, uh, aren't you somewhat liable? Like, you know, eBay, if you get scammed with eBay, eBay will help you out because, you know, they're, they're putting the sellers and buyers together. And Yahoo says, no, all we're doing is providing a service in which people can... You know, it's like a classified ads. We're sorry that you got scammed, but we're not liable. So here my buddy is, you know, just had a kid, got married, is strapped for cash, really no car, trying to find a car to save money, and wasted 4000 bucks on a scam. He got scammed good. And I think in some ways, getting scammed is like believing a heresy. You see this beautiful car. You, have, you see someone beautifully present this argument. Let's just say, you know, oh, all ways lead to heaven. All paths lead to God. And you have this beautifully scripted argument that you're listening to of someone saying, you know, wouldn't it be nice if all paths led to God? And you know, someone worshiping over here, doing the best they can, you know, they're on the same path to God. And you Christians, you know, you're worshiping God and reading the Bible, but we're all on the same path. Believing that lie Believing that false truth that directly contradicts the Bible is like getting scammed. In the end, if Jesus is the only way, which the Bible clearly says is true, then in the end there will be judgment. There will be penalties to play, pay for believing that heresy, that wrong truth, that falseness that was believed. Just like believing that that car is a good car and it's going to be sent to me, so I'm going to believe that that's true and give money. In the end, it was a scam. So don't get scammed. Read the Bible. Do hermeneutics. Get that idea in your heart that when we read something, we read it as if it's not written to us, but it's for us. Let's pray this morning. God, we do thank you for your word of truth, the Bible. God, as we study this month about First and Second Corinthians, would you empower us to do hermeneutics correctly, to interpret your word of truth to us so that we won't be scammed. We won't falsely believe in arguments that may sound good but do not have truth attached to them. God, we want to totally dive into you, your truth, your word. We want to believe what is, what is definitely true, what is knowledgeable, what is good and holy, the things of you. God, we leave here rejoicing knowing that we can find truth that you've given us truth, that you've given us the word. How we read the word with excitement because you've given it to us and it's the way and the path to find your son Jesus and the truth that you came and died for our sins. So God, we love you. We praise you this morning. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right, we'll high five at least three people that are total strangers to you.
as fast as you can. Peace out.